Hello, my friends. This is Brian Q. Davis broadcasting from the Sales Warrior Podcast, a conversation about dominating your marketplace without sacrificing your body, your marriage, your children, or your soul. And on today's very special episode, I have Chris Beal, CEO of Connect and Sell, joining me to talk about ambushing, trust, and curiosity, and why B2B sales is way simpler than you think. So, Chris, welcome to uh, welcome to the Sales Warrior Podcast. Hey, Brian, it is cool to be here. <laughs> yeah, this is. Uh, I'm glad we were able to set this up. It's uh, it's it's uh, taken a little bit, but um, it's uh, it's good to connect. And uh, as I was doing some research on you, I recognized that we've got some uh, some some commonality, and that we've operated in some of the same areas. But before we get into that, could you just share very quickly? Um, just give us the pitch about Connect and Sell. I've, I've seen you do this and it's a beautiful 30-second uh, pitch. Get, what, what's, what is Connect and Sell? And, and give, me the, give me the quick quick pitch on that. Oh man, the pressure's on. So uh, Connect and Sell is, is real simple. It's a way to let sales reps or anybody talk to as many people on their list, You know, people they want to talk to as they want to comfortably, no effort whatsoever. It's like push a button, wait a little bit, have a conversation. And the big idea is that if you can have enough conversations, you can build enough trust to guarantee the success of your business. It allows you to manufacture market dominance in a completely reliable way with progress every single day through making conversations happen. And sold. Okay, sign me up. That's <laughs> that's beautiful. So I, I uh, so for the audience, um, and we're going to get into this a little bit, Chris. I think what I see in you is what happens when you combine a guy who really knows how to actually write the software code that salespeople sell all the time. I, so my, my background is an English lit major. I, I had the benefit, the, the benefit of being very naive about, I didn't actually know where, how most of the stuff worked, but I had to know the value and I had to have, be, have, have good storytelling and uncovering skills to, to understand where somebody wanted to go and how our solution might fit back in the days of or, you know, any of the softwares that I've sold. But you're the example of what you get when you have the guy that actually knows how the software is built, bolted into a salesperson that actually understands sales, which is a rare, a rare thing. So can you tell me, just share with me a little bit, we talked about this just for briefly, but can you share with me a little bit about, you know, how did you get started? What was your first entry into kind of the entrepreneurial realm? I was probably uh, Dan Stevens and I, 11 years old, going door to door saying, we'll do anything. You know, <laughs> you, know, you got horse ships to be shoveled. You know, we lived out in the desert. There was a lot of horses and and there was always a lot of paint to be scraped off things. I don't, Nobody likes scraping paint. So we would do that kind of stuff. But what I learned was it had to do with who they thought we were. You know, they'd give us something to do because they liked us and trusted us. And I got thrust into, so I was going in two directions at the same time. So I always had these entrepreneurial feelings and instincts but I was a big math science guy. So I went off and got a degree in physics. I, I won some math contests here or there, that kind of thing. And it was weird how that came back together because at, at one point I got my degree. I was about to go teach my physics teacher whose job I was going to take at my high school, told me she wasn't going to let me take her job. After all this conspiracy, we had conspired for her to retire mid-year and force them to hire me. And then she said, you know, I'm an angel investor. And I said, what, what does that mean? You invest in angels? Because that doesn't sound 
very profitable to me unless you know you, you've got your bead on a couple of them you got to get them pick the right angle yeah <laughs> yeah that'd be pretty good like angel wrangling or something <laughs> but uh she said look I, you know i kind of keep track of all my students and um you know you're way at the top of the list in terms of my entrepreneurial rankings i want you to go start companies instead mm. and i didn't know how to do that so she said just go get a job in an industry where you know, you feel like you're, you, you've got some talent and you'll get so upset with how things are done that eventually you'll start a company. And she says, I just know you, you're like this. You don't, you don't settle for much, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. okay, so my bitching and moaning qualities are going to be put to the test. So I went into the software business with NCR because it was a job I could get and I had a pregnant wife. Mm-hmm. That was it. And, you know, money was there, right? Willie Sutton yeah. said he robs banks, rob banks because that's where the money is. Well, the money was in software. It's clear to me software was going to eat the world. This was back in 1979. Yeah. But it was obvious when you do the math, here you have this stuff that costs nothing to make another copy and people will pay for it. You don't have to be really smart to figure out there's going to be more and more of that. Right? Yes. So I, I was in the software world with NCR. And what I discovered was, now I've been a door-to-door sales guy at Fuller Brush. Right. For a little short period of time, and I was really, really good. I was like the top fuller brush man in forever in Arizona, using different techniques than anybody else. Applied psychology and math, not do what they told me to do. Mm-hmm. So here I am in NCR, and I, you know, I would make something or fix something or integrate something. And the, the damn salesperson would never know how to present it and how to close a deal. So I just started doing it. And that was it. That was it. I finally, you know, and then I'm building my own company. It's the same yeah. thing. It's like you build something, you think you know what it's for, and then you kind of have to go sell it if you want it really to get out there in the market. And what I realized was, and funny, I was just in talking to my fiance's book coach just minutes ago about mm-hmm. this, is that as software started to eat the world and we started to get this thing that I, I think a lot of us would call the innovation economy which is characterized by no inventory, right? There's no inventory for that thing you're selling. You used to sell Katia. There's mm-hmm. no inventory, right? right? It's not like, oh, we got to go make another Katia. Right. Right. It's just it, the cost of producing another copy is exactly zero. So in that world, all that's left for competitive advantage is sales mm-hmm. and customer success. Sales, because otherwise they won't trust you enough to try it and, you know, really give it a proper go and customer success, because everything is hard in the innovation economy. We've made everything so easy that everything's hard because everything has to integrate with everything. Everything has got to work into these workflows. You know, we have like, oh, my God, you can work from home. Well, that sounds easy and it's hard. Right. right. Everything's hard. And so now you're just down to two things, whereas making products, that's so easy now. You can make new software products without knowing how to code. That's amazing, right? So that's the world we live in now. And that's why I'm into sales as something to pay attention to is the entire innovation economy on which the whole world economy depends is bottlenecked on one thing, which is the flow rate of qualified meetings set by some salesperson who gives somebody to trust them enough and be curious enough to take that meeting. And I'm not speaking like, this isn't high level frou-frou stuff. That's like, I'm Gary, I'm telling you, I'm a mathematician by background. This is the math of the economy. 
And companies that want their innovation to be of use primarily have got to figure out how to sell it. That's their real job. So, so if, if you didn't hear that, like just if you're in sales, just recognize the value of what you do when you get lethal at your craft. Like the the re, the value you have across companies because there's this you're right Chris there is this thing of like you even see it right some of the some of the positioning is well sales is kind of going away people are just going to buy and uh, for for the for the innovation economy it all hinges on like you said sales and customer success so if you've got the skill sets inside of that then you're always going to have a job. In fact, you can be one of the most you can be one of the most important weapons in any company's arsenal. Is the sales team is really the differentiated value inside of it at some level, um, and what you guys do is is really um, increase the, th- the 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 throughput of the primary commodity that that drives everything else, which is the conversation. That's it. I mean, it's that's why I said it's simple. It's actually that simple, right? Now, if yeah. you suck, right, then we amplify suck. <laughs> right. I mean, that's Steve Richard once asked me many years ago, we're sitting around at a breakfast table and he's about to go on stage at a serious decisions conference in Nashville. And he says, what do you guys really do at Connect and Sell? And, you know, it's breakfast and, you know, we'd been out the night before all of us. And so I was not really thinking very clearly, but I just blurted out, we amplify suck <laughs> because the fact of the matter is there's no suck shortage out there. It's not like we're going to run out of suck when it comes to first conversations. People can suck at that like nobody's business. And um, so we we finally gave up and we went, ah, I guess we've got to do something about the amplifying suck. By the way, he stole the phrase one on stage. I love this guy. Like, I will never go on stage after Steve Richard. He's so good. (laughs) And so he went out and used it immediately, much more effectively than I did. And it kind of became a thing, amplifying suck. But um I tell you, it's, it's really interesting when you think about how simple it is, right? Mm-hmm. You make a list. That's your hypothesis about your market. People who think a market is, is a description of a market. Oh, we go after companies like this of a size and here's the persona and blah, blah, blah. It's like bullshit. Yeah. Make the list. Mm-hmm. If it's not a list, it's not a market. Jeff Moore taught me this way back in 1998, and I'm pretty sure it's still true, true today. So you make a list, but it's a hypothesis. It's always a hypothesis because you think everybody on this list, if you sell to one, it's going to be cheaper and lower risk and faster to sell to everybody else on that list because they're interreferenceable, right? That's what a market is, B2B. So do you know that? No. How do you do the experiment? Well, you got to sell to one of them. Right. Oh, well, how do you do that? Well, you got to get them in a meeting. Well, how do you do that? You got to have a conversation with them. Well, what's that conversation going to cause them to do? Change their emotional state from fear when you ambush them to curiosity sufficient to make a commitment to attend a meeting. Now, the only question left is, are you going to take the path, traditional path through value? I'm going to talk to you about value and get you to take a meeting. Or are you going to go through trust? And you can't do both. It's It's like the... In physics, there's this thing called the Pauli exclusion principle that says no two, no two particles of a certain type. I hate to tell you this. They're called leptons can occupy exactly the same quantum state. What's tr- 
true of human beings also in the sense that they can't occupy two emotional states simultaneously. We're too primitive for that. Mm-hmm. So you've got to choose which emotional state you're going to take that person into. You know they start at fear because you ambushed them and you're an invisible stranger. So that's great. You know where they start. That's the best thing in the world is knowledge of an initial state. Now what? Ah, well, you can either take them to value, in which case you're insulting them by telling them they were waiting for a sales guy to call them and tell them how to do their damn job. Or you can take them instantly to trust by relieving the conditions under which you just put them where you frightened them. Which is better? Well, trust is clearly better because they're not going to buy from you until they trust you more than they trust themselves. So you've got you've to get them on a trust path. Yeah, That's actually the key to dominating markets is to manufacture trust at pace and scale using conversations and then harvest it over the next three years as that market develops and relax in between because frankly, you're on top of the world. You own that space already. Mm. That's 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 beautiful. So it really does come back to this thing that I think you'd probably agree that most salespeople across the board lack, which is this initial, they're coming at the conversation from a, a place of need and neediness as opposed to intention and really other focus, knowing that as this person, you know, picks up the phone and is on the other side they're not even thinking about the fact that that person is at some level in a fight or flight mode of what, what, what did you just do? Like, what is it? I hate my phone. Like, well, how am I talking to this person? Right. It's like, instead they just try to push forward their own agenda of, like you said, value. Let me say, I've got to sell this person right now. I got to sell them because I only have this one chance. And if I don't get them uh, and, and they're, and they're carrying with them the, all of the lack and all of the pressure and all of the things that they're, they're, they're doing right into that conversation. And, you know, just like that great scene in Tommy Boy where he's got, I've got my deal and then I kill it. It's, ex- it's, exactly, <laughs> it's exactly what happens on these phone calls. Um, but what you're saying is it's, a, it's a, a flip of the script and coming at that conversation with full knowledge, like that, that knowledge of the initial state, know, knowing the knowledge of the initial state is one of those powerful places you can be because you can come in and go, I'm going to acknowledge this person's a human being just like me. I'm interrupting their day. They're going to be a fight, fight or flight, but I'm going to be intentional and hold enough space to give them a way out. And then I'm going to meet that commitment with, hey, you know, can I get, can I get the 27 seconds? As this, exactly. as you've, got a, you've, got a great, you've got a great line on that. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's simple and it's, it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's actually, I compare it to being a surgeon. If you're a surgeon who can't actually stand this one part of the operation where you cut into the person, which by the way, if you just go up to strangers with a knife and you start cutting them open, that's considered incredibly impolite, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, in fact, some people, I think there might be sort of stuff on the criminal code about <laughs> just walking up to people and cutting into them. But most of the people who are cut into every day on our planet are cut into by somebody who's trying to help them. Yeah. Right? yeah, That willingness to make that cut, knowing that there's going to be blood, is the key and not fainting at the sight of blood. If you faint at the sight of blood, I don't care. You can be the greatest anatomist in the world, <clears throat> super steady hands, you know, right? You can suture stuff that nobody else can suture. You can't be a surgeon. If you can't initiate a conversation in which you frighten another person, 
because that's just the state people are in when you ambush them. And you can't do something with that if you can't open them up without them agreeing to it. Actually, it's kind of like, you know, I anesthetize you before I cut you open. Mm -hmm. But then we're going to have a nice chat afterwards about improving your diet because I I really saw a bunch of stuff around your heart that wasn't so great. Right. So, you know, we've got to get in there and they're not seeking the doctor at that moment. So it's a little tricky. My friend Scott Webb says it this way. He says, you know, when I get somebody on the phone, my mindset is this. It's like reaching out to slap somebody in the chest who's about to step in front of us, a speeding bus, and mm-hmm. they don't see it. I'm saving their life. That's what I'm doing. So there, the need is the need for the other, not the need for yourself. And he set 75.9% of his conversations as meetings, which, by the way, he only does because he's dragging the tail of his initial week performance of only about seven times the, the world average. And now he's about like 20 times. But it's that mindset that you have to start with of service, that I'm here to save your life because I'm an expert and you're not. Mm-hmm. And it may well be that when we finally meet, you'll find out that I'm an expert about something that's irrelevant to you. Okay. Right. You know, say la vie. I right. mean, we got to explore. We can't find out without talking. Yeah, that's, that is that, is that, that thing of... of- and this is an interesting discussion point here is there's that mindset of service that, you know, at some level, some salespeople, you know, they don't, they haven't got to yet. They haven't realized that's what they're really doing. <clears throat> they are, and I, I like to always think of it as, you know, our job is we're, as salespeople, we're the Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? We're the, the Morpheus. We're the, the, the guide that's coming in to say, hey, hero, wake up, you know, you you got to go fight the you got to go fight the the evil empire right there's there's an opera I see more in you than you see in yourself or in in something that something that's there that there's an opportunity either a, either a a pit or a possibility that you're about that you you're either going to step into or or miss and so I'm going to tap you on the shoulder and say you know hey Luke you must learn the ways of the force like your father and he and and, and, the, and Luke's going to go. I can't go anywhere. I, I've got to stay here. And, you, and, and then he goes, okay, well, you got to do what you think is best. But, you know, I see more in you than you see in yourself. And, and so there's this, he knows I, I'm coming to save the guy's life. And that's for, when you're coming at it from that place of your heart, um, that energy comes through the phone call. It comes through the meeting. And, um, but, but it's not always an easy place to get into that state for a salesperson, especially when they're you know, behind on the number, or they got the manager after them, or things aren't going good at home, or whatever like that. Do you what do you what do you think about in terms of the salesperson preparing themselves for that kind of other focused state? I think there's two pieces. One is you've got to get out of the scarcity mindset. Sadly, scarcity is a reality. That's I mean, that's why our business exists. It's a reality when it comes to phone conversations. You know, just because yes. <clears throat> back in 2003 to 2005, some technology dudes came up with this thing called cheap storage to go along with voicemail, Octel and VMX, and those guys had voicemail out there. Storage got so cheap that they started encouraging companies to open their voicemail systems up to the outside. I mean, in the 90s, voicemail systems were used internally only. You would never open them up because it was too expensive to store the voice. The voice is big. Right. And you don't spin it on a disc for nothing. 
So it, those guys, they changed their business strategy and started encouraging their customers to open up their voicemail systems. And that coincided with universal caller ID. And next thing you know, folks are letting down a lot of the inbound calls to them go to voicemail. A lot like yeah. voicemail open rates, actually listening to voicemail went down 30% per year every year in 2003, four, five, and six until it effectively dropped to zero. So now you've got a weird world where we built the 20th century on the telephone because it lets us do trust-based business with people who aren't in the same room as us. I mean, it was the, that's the invention. It wasn't the car. It wasn't the airplane. It wasn't all that crap. It was, hey, we can... And, and by the way, the telegram doesn't work. The telegraph was, was the original internet, but it doesn't work for building trust. You had to get on a sailing ship or get on a train or something and go meet people to build the trust relationship so then you could do business by internet, which was called a telegraph. Right? That was the first internet, much more powerful than the current one in terms of its effect, because it was literally from nothing. Right. You know, like people riding horses around saying, here's your mail or a you know bag of mail on a train somewhere to, my God, instantaneous communication, but not instantaneous trust. Hmm. So the phone allowed us to break the trust barrier at a distance, which opened up business and fundamentally changed the economy. The innovation economy was built on the telephone, not because the telephone is interesting tech, but because it carries 2000 bits a second of the human voice and text can only run at about 5,000 bits in a whole package that you would read. And, and, and email is about 5,000 bits. That's if you get somebody to read it, that's mm -hmm. one quarter of a second of human conversation, mm -hmm. quarter of a second, right? So what's all that rest of that information doing? It's conveying feelings. That's what it's doing. It's conveying emotions. And so that's why it comes through in your voice because you can't keep it out. Because nobody can do that unless you're a true psychopath. Now, I don't recommend true psychopaths go into sales, <laughs> but there are some. I've seen them. Yeah. And they, they, them. some of them raise themselves to quite high positions in companies. And they do. sometimes, you know, this and that happens eventually and they get found out and sometimes not. And sometimes, <laughs> by the way, they're kind of like benign psychopaths, right? They're, <laughs> they have no feelings for anybody else, but they sure are good at manipulating people. And they sort of decide to be a psychopath with ethics. That, those right, are right. independent concepts, right? But for most of us, how we feel comes directly out through our voice in a way other human beings can sense in the moment. I asked Chris Voss, how long do we have to get somebody to trust us in a cold call? And he said, seven seconds. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, our research says eight seconds. Mm -hmm. Actually, I told him that. And he says, your, your research is wrong. It's seven seconds. It's like, that's how long we have. It sounds short, but seven seconds is 28 emails. And that's where we're going to end it today for part one of two of our powerful and insightful interview with Chris Beal, CEO of Connect and Sell. Come back for part two on the Sales Warrior podcast, where we're always having a conversation about how to dominate your marketplace without sacrificing your body, your marriage, your children, or your soul. More to come, and we'll see you on episode two.